Welcome to Rogue News. We are the preeminent geostrategic, geoeconomic, and geopolitical news show on YouTube and on the web. Join us for hard-hitting analysis, behind-the-scenes strategy, and brutal commentary. Find out why many consider us the place to get their news and information. Check us out at roguenews.com. Follow us on Twitter at Real Rogue News, Facebook, and most of the popular podcasting apps. Most of all, remember to subscribe, like, comment, and share. Good morning, everybody. This is Ranjit. I'm filling in for V, the gorilla, and uh, we have with us uh, Veles. <laughs> Folks, it's Veles. It's Friday. V for Veles is the show. Uh, check him out. He is the Dark Raven of the Deep State. He is lurking within the inner recesses of the Discord. And today I will be broadcasting. So cross your fingers and hopefully I don't screw anything up. God help well, the, us. the good part is you're not muted. <laughs> I'm not muted, and and we're live instead of us talking and not being live. Right. <laughs> oh man. And with that being said, Vels, there's lots going on. Today's going to be a special broadcast. You're going to be taking us down this uncharted territory where angels fear to tread, my to friend. Tread. Yes. Amen to that. So what we're going to, brother. We, we're going to cover a bunch of things today, folks. We've got a little yes. bit of the normal kind of Vellus content, and then we're going to get into some alternative archaeology things. Um, hello, Annie. Hello, uh, Kingva, uh, Algo Cowboy, Gilbert Nowak, uh, Biden Sucks Stuff, and Jay Charlotte, <laughs> uh, along with the others that are, are popping on. Um, yes. Yes, and if you get a chance, folks, uh, Zero Hedge is blowing up this morning with a ton of stuff. Um, yep. Just a, a number of really good articles, so uh, give give that a, a look when you get a chance. Uh, Mike Moore's program this morning, he uh, always does a show on Fridays with a woman whose name always escapes me. Um, she has her own program, Mitch. but they kind of, yeah, they just kind of do a, a two-person thing. Um, and on his program this morning, this little soundbite popped up. I posted it to Discord. I thought this was pretty good. It's a one-party system with a two-party illusion. Um Love also, yes, yesterday on Rogue News during the afternoon, uh, we had Doc Keck on, and that mm -hmm. was an amazing broadcast, and very glad that we had Doc Keck on. So if you have a chance, folks, please go rewatch that on Twitch or the roguenews.com uh, website. Uh, some very powerful stuff, some good video content in there. Um, what do you call it? Uh, so give that a go and uh, check out his program because we've been waiting a while to have him on and it was very, very good. Um, there's no show for me next week, Friday the 17th of February. I will be a uh, favorite comment. I know for many of you because you immediately start watching the news to start seeing things blowing up. Uh, I will be traveling. Uh, I will be down south. Uh, that's as much as I'm going to say about that. <laughs> so... Uh, 
Anyway, I will be back uh, to quote John Wayne, God willing, and the creek don't rise on Friday the 24th. So no show for Velas on the 17th, and I will be traveling the latter half of next week. For those of you that are trying to correlate when I'm on the road and when things start happening in the news. Um, so today's program, uh, we're going to heavily cover Mark Carlotto's work and his book, uh, Before Atlantis, uh, kind of a high level about his book. Um, also want to cover some things on the international environment. And uh, after we get out of the international environment, we're going to talk about some writing forms in the ancient world. Uh, I've actually got a song video for all of you from the Sumerian period uh, done in the original instrument. And then uh, we'll get into to Mark's work. So um, the contemporary topic for this for today, uh, I posted a Daily Mail article on Wednesday night whose focus was on legacy FEMA data about which cities in the United States would be targets for nuclear attack. Now, there is so much wrong with that article on so many levels, it's hard to decide where to begin first. So I'll start here. I do sort of know my way around Cold War targeting. Uh, I've covered that on a couple of shows, no reason to revisit that here, but I do sort of know my way around this topic matter. Uh, the cities and the targets from that article are based on old FEMA data and isn't even germane. Uh, it also highlights to me how poorly functioning many federal agencies are. Every site on that targeting list from the article I posted on Discord is basically a 1950s level importance. It's manufacture, major manufacturing locations in the United States, population centers, along with the missile silos up in the western United States. Uh, another consideration is why would Russia even consider nuclear weapons against the United States when they have so many fascinating non-nuclear options at their disposal? And also the dynamics of nuclear exchanges, especially since the old end of the Cold War, uh, everybody have radically changed, and that is a fact. Uh, now, I wish I could say this is fear porn, but unfortunately, I think they're telegraphing. And when I say telegraphing, recall what I raised about Brendan O'Connell's often stated belief uh, a tactical nuclear weapon may be used in Ukraine, and he's not the only person who's kind of been cautiously. Well, they idea. just use chemicals right now. Last week, I don't know if you've seen the video of the, of the Russian soldiers dying. It's unbelievable. They're dropping chemical weapons on Russian soldiers. I saw the and, video; and it was sickening. Yeah, and and again, in my opinion, they're trying to provoke a response out of Russia that raises yeah. it to a level that justifies something. I mean, if we're not the 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 headquarters of Satanism Incorporated, I don't know who is, man. I don't know uh, who is. Starbucks 6319, thank you, because I meant to include that in my comments this morning. Um, I do not have an update on Turkey per se, but I do want to raise to everybody on today's program, certainly prayers for Turkey as well as Syria, um, you know, conflict notwithstanding in those regions, because the last I saw were, were over 15,000 casualties. Good God, and man. not to be indelicate, but again, if we had that kind of a casualty count, let's say due to some natural disaster in the United States, we would have like a 9-11-like reaction because unfortunately that's just kind of the way we do things. So a tremendous loss of life in Turkey, a tremendous loss of infrastructure, uh, uh, continuing loss of life in Syria. There's also uh, great issues with, um, what do you call it, the aid reaching Syria because of the conflict there um it's just bad uh, there's no other way to put it and once again uh the mainstream media all of them fox included have done a absolute crap job uh covering that story now on this nuclear detonation thing 
not ding, downplaying that threat. Uh, I'm speaking the way I would speak if I was still working for the research institution at the Department of Defense where I used to work. Uh, a battlefield nuclear weapon is in the kiloton range, not megaton range. And that's a huge difference when you're talking about a 1 to 10 kiloton munition versus talking about megatons. Now, is it serious? Does it cause harm, radiation effects? Yes, absolutely. But it's not Chernobyl, who also, by the way, is in that same country. And the radiation released is manageable outside of the battlefield area. Now, it would, of course, scare the living crap out of people worldwide, and the media can now have 7 by 24 coverage for their advertisers. Uh, also, as an awareness, CBS News uh, had provided a news blurb or two about America's nuclear capabilities uh, recently as well, uh, you know, in case those mean Russians do something. Um, what is a parallel item with the battlefield nuke rumors is cyber attacks, uh, of which a lot of powerful people would like us all to forget their simulations from last summer. Uh, I also posted a Forbes article on Tuesday of this week about cybersecurity, and it was the final major topic, by the way, that was covered at the World Economic Forum meetings in Davos recently. So per that article, 93% of the attendees of the Davos meetings believed the world is headed towards a major cyber event. Now, why does that matter? Well, number one, the topic was raised at Davos, which in and of itself makes it important. It also was the final topic they covered, and they took a survey on it, which is a little unusual. The last I recall, I don't ever recall anybody taking a survey at a WEF meeting for anything. Uh, the second item is Bill Gates and others have already sponsored tabletop simulations during the prior year around what would happen if a major cyber event occurred. Keyword, major. Uh, third, those simulations focused on some rather interesting things, and it wasn't just power grids or, geez, I can't download money or move money in my bank account online. Uh, it's things like uh, the ATM machines all shut down for whatever period of time. Please see the often repeated comment we've made here on Rogue News about keeping whatever country you're in, keeping some cash on hand. Uh, now, I've had some folks on Discord send me uh, pictures of like their gun safes and fine gun safes that they are and well-constructed and usually made in the Midwest, so thank you. Um, but they'll have like stacks of hundreds and, and gold coins and things. And it's like, if that's just stuff you want to have on hand, cool. But in this situation, for me personally, uh, I keep 10s and 20s uh, in safe locations uh, for, you know, just such an emergency to quote Foghorn Leghorn from Bugs Bunny. Um, you, you I, I still keep, I still keep singles from my, uh, exotic dancing days. Fellas. There you, there you go. Yeah. Next up on the dance floor is, um, yeah. So keep some cash on hand folks. Um, what do you call it? Uh, just in case now on this hacking thing, um, the other things that were covered at some of these conferences were uh, very targeted and specific interruptions to fuel supplies, uh, which obviously hampers uh, backup generator operation for hospitals and other institutions that need those generators to keep operating. Uh, the targeting of frozen food storage locations, uh, which would obviously be impacted by both loss of grid as well as loss of backup, uh, causing nuclear power plants to scram. Uh, for those of you who may not be familiar, a scram is when very specialized controls in a nuclear power plant shut down the nuclear reactions quickly uh, to prevent a meltdown, uh, and the list goes on. Um, one of my personal favorites, because this has also been covered, uh, what if the FAA is compromised to the point that pilots are scrambling not to fly into each other? 
Um, and again, to reference Brendan O'Connell again, uh, he, along with others, are putting out the idea that they believe if there is a nuclear detonation in the Ukrainian battle space, that you would find a cyber attack that takes place either just before or just, just following. Which, of course, all of that combined would do a marvelous job to completely drown the public uh, of stopping any awareness of the further harm being caused by coof shots and related. So with that, let's move into the ancient world and, and have a, a giant mental sorbet here. Um, so I want to start first with uh, writing forms in Sumeria and beyond. Now, the Sumerian Empire was in the region around what is modern-day Iraq. And the Sumerians, uh, very loosely, the way they operated is kind of similar to the way I often think of the Aztecs, um, perhaps even the Mayans. And that's going to be kind of a weird reference point. But it's almost kind of a franchise model where each city-state operates very similarly to one another. They use the same standards for communication, uh, the way records are kept, uh, the way conflict is managed, the list goes on, the way payments are provided. Everybody kind of operates like a bunch of, of McDonald's franchises. Um, they also can go to war with one another uh, in a minute if things get jacked up enough. Now, Sumeria was a lot more civilized than the Aztecs, but we'll just go with that narrative. So in ancient Samaria, you had several powerful cities, including Sumer, Akkad, Babel, Ur, and the list goes on. Now to oversimplify, and we're going to see some of these cities uh, shortly because I have some images I want to show you. Um, to way oversimplify, Sumer <clears throat> was ruling, the city-state of Sumer was ruling over the other city-states, and we often refer to that as the Sumerian Empire, and others followed their lead for years. Now, during a period of instability, the city-state of Akkad assumed control, assumed control over the region, which we know as the Akkadians. And then when they weakened, Babel took over, which gives us the Babylonian Empire. Um, now, by the way, uh, the city-state or the empire of Akkad or the Akkadians, not Arcadia. Arcadia is in Greece. I know sometimes these get confused. Um, and of course, at this point, the minute you start dealing with the Babylonians, you're dealing with the Old Testament, and you can just kind of start from there and move forward. Now, in the modern Latin alphabet, we have symbols who are not sounds, but they represent currencies or things like copyrights or something's been registered or whatever it might be. In the writing form of the Babylonians, they had a marker or a glyph in their writing that meant it was a symbol that stood for this is copied from an original with the original either being an old Babylonian record or an Akkadian record. Because again, remember, each of these city-states took over from other city-states, and we, we call them these various empires and stuff, but it all started with the Sumerians. So as the Babylonians followed the Akkadians, sometimes when it came to especially laws or other records, when they had to make a copy, they put this symbol on the cuneiform tablet and said, this is a copy of the original. And they had a symbol that meant this is a copy of a, of a former Babylonian record that was broken or whatever, or this is a copy of an Akkadian document, especially if they were passing various instructions or rules or what have you out to other city-states. This is the original, this is the copy. Now, the Akkadian alphabet or script also had a symbol for copied from original. Now, you can guess where I'm going with this. The Sumerians had a symbol for copied from pre-Sumerian original which begs the question, what original? From whom? Where did that come from? What, what was there before you? 
Now, along these lines, uh, V, if you'll you'll prep prep the video, um, I have a video for all of you by an artist named Peter Pringle. You can find his stuff on YouTube. Uh, and this is his singing the Epic of Gilgamesh. Now, Peter uh, has a number of these videos where he sings original songs with original instruments uh, from the ancient world as well as medieval Europe. Now, this piece is the opening of the Epic of Gilgamesh, which is a very, very long um, sung story. Uh, one of the, you know, the great epics, uh, for some of you who know your medieval history, you know, the bards walking around with a guitar or a lute or whatever, singing about these, <laughs> these great stories. Yeah. And this is, this is one of the greatest epics of the Sumerian empire. Now, the reason why I'm playing this is a couple of things. Number one, he's playing it on an original instrument, which is pretty cool. Number two, he's singing it in Sumerian. So you get a chance to actually hear what the language sounded like, but also note, cause the lyrics will appear on the screen. Notice in the lyrics in the beginning where he says things like in those ancient days or other statements about all things were given their names and bread was first tasted in the land. So again, this is a Sumerian epic about the famous king or leader Gilgamesh, but the way the song begins describes things as though this is previous to the Sumerians even existing, that there was something prior to them. So with that, V, if you'll click play. Udre
could be. So that's a, a, a little bit of the ancient world there. Uh, Gilbert Nomak, yeah, where did he get the sheet music? Uh, it was on a cuneiform tablet. It said copied from original. Um, that's a joke. Um, yeah, the Sumerian Stratocaster uh, hobo sermons. <laughs> so anyway, uh, just a little context there. So with that, I want to start talking about some of the building styles uh, from Peru, because all of this is leading into Mark Carlotto's book and what he had in it. So I'm going to have V pull up the PowerPoint, and I'm going to walk you through what's in here. Now, the front end uh, of some of these pictures is distinct wall styles in Peru. But first, a little humor. <laughs> Archaeologists in 3000 AD, nobody understands why these were built. Uh, Route 66. Um, so if you'll scroll down to the next one. What I want to point out is, is that oftentimes, even uh, conventional archaeologists have, have pointed out that the construction styles used in Peru are, are loosely put like two phases. And the first phase incorporated what you see here, uh, which is you'll notice the rounded edges and so on. Uh, obviously, the, the stones fit very tightly. But uh, this also is believed by a number of, of alternative researchers that what we're looking at, which is mind-blowing when you think about it, is a form of binary mathematical expression of things as yet we've yet to define what this is that essentially the walls are built in a way that incorporates messages or language hmm. and they've taken some of these walls apart and they have found inside certain sections two important things one i've raised this before they've found what many people call the dog bone but imagine kind of a dog bone shape, two rounded uh, ends and a bar in the middle. And what it is, is it is a metal that we use in modern construction to help secure walls. It's a pin. It's a metal pin. Uh, in some cases, you might think of it as just a short piece of rebar, if you're familiar with how highways are built. Now, why does that matter? Well, because these pins have been found in Peru. They've been found in Egypt. They've been found at uh, Nan Medal. They've been found in um, Angkor Wat in Cambodia. They've been found all over the world. Another very, very, very important thing, because certain people have said, oh, it's no big deal. Any architect could look and see you need something to help secure these walls together. It's like, okay, fine. I might be willing to go with that but the metallurgy of the pins is almost exactly the same. Hmm. And it's worldwide and it's in different locations. Go with that. So what we're looking at here, rounded edges, uh, very carefully fitted together. Most probably we've got some kind of language incorporated into this. And of course, from an engineering perspective, because I do work with engineers of, of all varieties, the thing that blows my mind about this is I can, I can imagine a, a meeting in the ancient world where people are sitting around wherever and somebody goes, okay, uh, the survivors of Atlantis have shown up and told us that we got to, like, they'll, they'll help us understand medical knowledge and, and rebuilding our society and this, that, and the other. But they want us to construct some, some sites to send messages into the future. Okay, cool. But while we do this, we have to build walls not of uniformly sized blocks that are roughly the same size, but each one of them are different because the 
construction will incorporate a message. We don't understand the message, but the, you know, the Atlanteans have promised us the message is there. Okay, great. But we've also got to incorporate construction techniques that uh, these little um, stone balls that are inside these walls, they allow for movement. Now, what's interesting about that is, is that Japan in the 1980s started incorporating a similar construction technique into their buildings. It's actually a commercial code in Japan because of the frequency of earthquakes. The small balls inside the structure allow it uh, some degree of movement uh, because this area of Peru is highly prone to earthquakes. And of course, the ancient sites that, and I loosely use the word Incan, um, uh, have survived for years, whereas every time somebody built a large Catholic church, it falls apart and they've got to, on top of one of these sites and they've got to go rebuild it every time there's an earthquake. So V, if you'll move this one. There you go. Now, same sort of thing. This is another, you know, first phase, if you will. Now, you'll also notice some knobs or nubs and on a number of different forums, people have really been talking about the knobs or the extensions off these stone walls actually having some other form of indicator along with whatever kind of message, if you will, they're trying to incorporate into this into this wall. Uh, if you'll move to the next one. Now this one is, is really interesting because the wall is basically almost bent inward. I mean, they could have just had a seam right there down the middle of the picture, but they didn't. The stones were, dare one say, carved or bent in such a way that it incorporates this same kind of curved style in the stones and the way the walls are constructed. That's wild, it's man. Also, it's like it it's almost melted. Exactly. It's exactly. crazy. Some, it's like they stacked people... it into a corner and then they like melted that round, that round edge out. It's, that's wild. Well, and there are people who have brought up the idea because there were certain Spanish chroniclers who in their diaries, which again, folks, is another reminder when it comes to archaeology or the ancient world or even the events of the war between the states. I've mentioned this on other shows that we're still discovering things about the American Civil War because of people's diaries, uh, not just the conduct of battles, but what was on people's minds, what was going on at the time, motivations, the list goes on. So the problem for Western researchers, say it with me, is the Spanish chroniclers wrote everything in old style Spanish. And especially with American researchers, you know, it's, I don't speak your language, so I'm not reading your stuff. Uh, so this has caused some issues, but thanks to chat GPT and thanks to, I'm joking, and thanks to some, some language translation software and people also talking to each other uh, globally more effectively thanks to the internet. Uh, it's enabled a, a re-examination of a lot of these um, records that were left behind. And some of the Spanish chroniclers talked about how even after Spain had conquered everything in those regions and, and a lot of these friars and monks and priests and so on were interviewing local peoples to try and understand their, their former culture. And they were either shown techniques or techniques were described where they used certain kinds of acidic juices mixed with certain minerals that allowed them to bend stone. Now, like a lot of things, including real, yeah. uh, what do you call it, um, Damascus steel. I could, take all, I, could, I could take all kinds of acidic juices and throw it on stone and it will not bend, my man. <laughs> 
These guys are incredible. Well, it's it's not just that. It's it's kind of like when I see people saying, "Oh, I've got Dama- a, a, a reproduced Damascus steel knife," and it's like we're still trying to figure out how, how Damascus. Steel <laughs> I know. Is. I know. You can buy them on Amazon for thirty dollars. <laughs> right. <laughs> I'm like, yeah, sure. That's Damascus steel. Sure. So was was a technique like what I described possible? Sure, it may be possible, but we just don't we don't know. We just don't know. No, you don't believe um, that somebody could take some juice, throw it on a six hundred ton stone, and then simply just you know melded it like like putty into a corner. Well, and and again, maybe it was sound. Who knows? If you if you roll to the exactly next one, exactly sound. So look this next this. one is phase oh is phase two. God, look at that. So you'll notice Dude, that's incredible. We now have what? We have more uniform sized blocks. This is phase yeah. two. We don't have the curving, but the st- you know this is what in archaeology circles they call uh, dressment uh, or polishing. You know the surfaces of the stones are uniform. The fitting is perfect. You've heard the old story about you can't slip a, a razor blade through there. And you know I traipsed all over Peru for about two weeks um, many years ago and went to a number of these different sites and. Uh, you know, the word awesome comes to mind. There's, there's no other way to describe it. The, the absolute smoothness of it, the construction of it. But again, it's not a criticism, but you can tell you're dealing with a different phase of building still highly advanced, still uses the metal pins, still uses the small roller balls in certain sections of the wall to allow for movement, but it doesn't have that higher level that higher degree of construction technique that we saw in phase one. Now, V, if you'll go to the next next one. This is just another example. And again, you can see the wall behind. And if you'll you'll go to the, the next one. Now I've compared the two. So picture in the center phase two picture on the left which you saw before phase one so phase one we have a wall that is curved inward where just defies description we have this construction on the right and again a construction on the right has these knobs we're not sure what they are there's people trying to figure that out i think we're getting closer we have more uniform sized stones now, yes, we have a, a section of wall here that, that makes a 90-degree turn, and there's there's a very nice smoothed edge along along those stones. But notice the difference of this 90-degree turn of this wall versus the turn of the wall on the left. Both highly advanced, both very high quality. The one on the white, right, or sorry, the one on the left is radically more advanced than the one on the right. The other thing, too, is, is if you count up four layers, one, two, three, four, you'll notice these stones are a little off. They're shit right. If you look right at the center line of where the of where the wall turns, you'll see the stones from the fourth block up are slightly shifted to the left. I saw this location myself. There was an earthquake, and it caused those stones to shift slightly. But you'll notice, post-earthquake, what, maybe a quarter of an inch, if that, the wall is still intact and all of the earthquake kind of managing features that were incorporated did their job. So let's uh, scroll to the next slide. Annie, I wouldn't use that word, but uh, they're knobs. 
uh, or uh, protrusions from the stone. They're still trying to figure out what those are. They think it may be a form of binary or perhaps even like Egyptian hieroglyphics where how do you know where to start with hieroglyphics? Well, you have to find the hawk of Horus and wherever the hawk is looking, that's where it begins the writing. Uh, so it's the same thing. Do the knobs kind of indicate where to start? Not sure. No one knows. So as above, so below. We've heard the stories from Graham Hancock. We've heard the stories from Robert Schock and others about the pyramids of Giza, that the one pyramid is offset and that it is representative of the belt of Orion. Uh, as above, so below. The heavens above and down on earth below. The thing that a lot of people are not aware is that Teotihuacan complex in Mexico has the same offset feature. The Pyramid of Quetzalcoatl, the Pyramid of the Sun, and then the Pyramid of the Moon is slightly offset, same as the Pyramid of Menkar. The other thing too about Teotihuacan is, is, is it is a complete layout of our solar system, including Uranus and Neptune, which they somehow knew about. <laughs> Moving forward. There we go. Now, I had been looking all over for this image. I came across it on Pinterest, and I was like, God, i got to have this image for this show. I've been looking for two weeks for this damn image, and I finally found it, I think, on Wednesday. Um, a lot in one sitting here, but I definitely wanted to use it for today's program. So what we've got are like, what, are three phases of time. And if you go to the top image, we've got some palm trees. We got a guy holding a banner and he's walking on a nice stone road. We've got two kind of tall obelisk-like features here. Uh, you'll also notice if you look up into the sky that an object is levitating that looks just like the one that's on the ground. Um, I forget my geometry, what that particular shape is, but not trapezoid, but kind of like that. So you've got two of these trapezoidal uh, features, uh, but the one is sitting on the ground and the other one is float floating up in the sky. So then we find ourselves coming into a period of history where we have a ice age and we got a mammoth and we got two guys walking around with spears. And uh, we now notice that the obelisk structures have some cracks and some damage. They're weathering because there's no one left to maintain them. And the same thing with the object in the distance. It's, it's showing wear and tear now. And then the third object, we got a guy, a figure standing in a red robe, and he's holding perhaps a walking stick or what have you. Now, the road is still there, but it's no longer stone. And the trapezoid-like feature off in the distance now just kind of looks like, well, Devil's Tower or a similar structure. And then we just have the ruined re remnants of what were the two, the two obelisks. And so, um, what do you call it? Uh, it's very germane to a lot of what I've been covering on these types of archaeology-related uh, programs. Uh, I'll, I'll go post this image out on Discord later. But anyway, it's it's a good thought piece, as the old saying goes, uh, for what we're talking about. So we'll we'll get into some of the remaining data on the slides here in a moment. So about Mark Carlotto, let's let's talk about Mark. Um, his inspiration comes from Charles Charles Hapgood's theories. Some of you may be familiar with Charles Hapgood, and. Hapgood's theories dealt with uh, prior ice ages on Earth having been caused by pole shifts, magnetic pole shifts. Now, Mark 
Carlotto has identified what he believes are four major shifts over the last 100,000 years. And that's a significant period of time because other than what other folks in the alternative community have proposed, and it raises some interesting questions. Um, a lot of the focus in the alternative community often centers around a time window of about 15,000 years. That's enough to get us to just before the last ice age, perhaps, I'm using air quotes, perhaps a civilization like Atlantis, perhaps a civilization like Lemuria, who survive of some fashion that ice age and go about building, helping the world rebuild. Mark works with a 100,000-year timeline, which opens up a lot of possibilities. Now, what are Mark's credentials? Well, he's been an aerospace engineer for over 30 years. He has a specialization in satellite imaging and image processing with pattern recognition. And again, I'm, I'm referencing his book called Before uh, Atlantis. And um, he has an electrical engineering degree. He's a PhD from Carnegie Mellon. Uh, he's published over 100 technical articles. Uh, he once worked for a research group or spent a lot of his career working for a research group called TASC, uh, T-A-S-C. I know who TASC is. TASC, they're out of Boston area. They were partners of mine when I was supporting a, a uh, Department of Defense Research Laboratory when I was a chief scientist there. Uh, we worked with TASC often, uh, especially if we needed some geospatial work or we needed some some uh, ground geographic work or similar. Um, it's because of Mark's work in those fields that led him into research into alternative archaeology. Um, he has a ton of mathematics in his book at the level of calculus about astronomical features, solar observations, lunar events, etc. And quite frankly, that's above my pay grade. Vellus does not do math. Um, I've tried to do math. I've had struggles with math. I appreciate math. I like math, but math is just too much for me to deal with. Um, he's done his homework, that's for sure. And, you know, even if, shall we say, he's wrong or some of his, his ideas may be off, um, you really got to bring your A game if, if you're going to argue that point because he, he can back up what he's been talking about because he's got it all uh, documented in his book. Now, he believes the Aztec or Mayan ages that are referenced on the famous calendars we're familiar with are periods of time where massive pole shifts caused unimaginable devastation across the planet, that the famous Aztec or Mayan calendars and the famous five ages on those calendars are in fact a living record of each of these migrations of the magnetic pole. Now, he does not, like other authors do, he does not delve into was this a planetary impact, was this a solar event, or some other thing that caused the magnetic poles to shift. And that's fine. Uh, he's focusing on his area. We'll leave, we'll leave that to, um, Brendan Carlson and others to dig into the, what caused it. Um, he also focuses on the, the pole alignments in ancient times, having moved from Greenland to Canada, to Alaska and various sites around the world. Um, he's also, uh, good enough to reference a ton of people in the alternative field and says, you know, I took my inspiration from this person's work, or I agree with their theory on whatever. Um, uh, this also included someone, uh, who's only been referenced by two or three folks I know of, which doesn't mean anything, but, but, um, that being, uh, Thomas von Flandern, you may recall, I brought von Flandern up previously. Uh, because his research into what he called the exploded planet hypothesis was used heavily by the late author, uh, Alan Alford. I shared with all of you that I, Alan, 
Alan is one of those guys that even in Alan's works, Graham Hancock said, like, bro, I have no idea what the hell you're saying <laughs> uh, in your books. Uh, and I'll admit, I, I own pretty much everything Alan Alford ever published. And a couple of his books, I think I stopped halfway through. And I'm like, that's enough of that. Um, he's He's got good work, but he, he really, Alan Alford really delves into some obscure stuff and really minutia when it comes to ancient Egyptian belief systems. And it's just, Alan, I can't deal with this. But Alan did have one about the Great Pyramid uh, at Giza. I told you all about this, that it was the last book he published. And many of the things he said in his book about, and he wrote it in, um, oh dear, the, the early 1990s, um, or mid-1990s. Alford said in his book, I'm putting my reputation behind the following. You will find a cavity located here in the Great Pyramid. You will find another cavity or storage space in the Great Pyramid located here. And this was based on what he felt were very subtle and hidden stonemason's works uh, or marks in the Great Pyramid that you would only know, you know, and it goes back into the whole sacred knowledge thing. Um, but Alford for years uh, used von Flandern's work to kind of buttress a lot of what his theories were based on. And the exploded planet hypothesis, loosely put, is that there was at some time in our solar system's history, there was a planet located near or around where Mars's orbit is, and that Mars was in fact a moon of that planet. And the planet came apart for whatever reason, and it showered the solar system with debris. So, And Saturn got its, uh, its asteroid belt. Uh, that and uh, von Flandern proposed that a large enough planetary uh, remnant uh, slammed into Jupiter and gave it the red spot. Because we know after the Shoemaker-Levy comic struck, uh, each of the impact points from, from those planet or those cometary fragments left behind um, storms or, or um disruptions in the the cloud belts of Jupiter that were seen for some time. And then there's a couple of folks who have actually gone back to von Flandern's work and have said, okay, we know what the explosive force should be of a, of a cometary fragment uh, exploding in, in Jupiter's atmosphere. So based on that, the planetary fragment that should have hit Jupiter would be about this big. So I leave, again, I leave that to other people smarter in those topics than me to, to get into that. But, but anyway... Now, in the book itself, you all can go, uh, yes, Hobo Sermons, you're absolutely right, Tiamat, uh, for those of you who know that reference. Um, you all can pick up a copy of his book if you like. Um, it's, it's not what you'd expect. It's not one of these highly slick, hardcover, you know, kind of tomes. I mean, it, it reads like a white paper. He's got pictures and things in there, and he's got a ton of his mathematical formulas, and it's, you know, sine and cosine, and the minute I see that, I just I just scream like a scalded animal and run away, because it's like, I can't, no, bro, I'm not getting into that. i got to pay people to diagnose what you said here, but I'll, I'll go with your other diagrams and things that show magnetic alignments and so on. So what's germane mostly for what we're talking about today and, and Mark's work is this theory or this idea of what's called polar wander uh, or the wandering of our, of our poles or our magnetic north. Now, Mark gives credit to a researcher known as uh, Alfred Wagoner, who in 1912 proposed a theory around Pangaea as a single continent prior to it breaking up and the rest of Wagner's work around plate tectonics. His work was mostly discredited until the 1960s, Wagner's work was, when paleomagnetic data proved that the poles had been shifting in past ages as well as C4 and plate tectonic drift. 
of course, like a lot of these things, I think by then Wagoner had died and never knew that everybody realized, oh shit, he actually was right. Um, part of those theories are relative to the prior 100,000 years, as much as millions of years ago, that demonstrate violent ocean level changes as well as reshaping of continents. Uh, Mark also reminds uh, his reader of something often lost in Plato's famous Critias and Timaeus, uh, because when that is referenced, Many people often point to it as, well, well yes, in, in Plato's Critias and Timaeus, he talks about Atlantis. The part that's often forgotten is in Plato's work, he doesn't just talk about Atlantis. He talks about other civilizations that were destroyed by floods or, or massive changes on the earth. We tend to focus on Atlantis, but we forget about the fact that he did talk about other civilizations. Now, again, the ages, ages or suns, actually the sun in the sky, spoken of in Mesoamerica, where in each case the world was destroyed by floods or earthquakes or all-consuming planetary fire. Now, it's important to keep in mind, we have many civilizations around the world who speak about different ages of time. In some cases, they speak of two or three because that's their history, etc. We have the Greeks who often talk about the Golden Age, the Silver Age, the Age of Heroes. Uh, we have other ages spoken of in the Near East. So again, we have this, if you will, this race memory uh, from all these different civilizations talking about multiple ages. How many were there really? Well, I leave that to other scholars to figure that out. But the net of it is, as we know in Mesoamerica, they speak of five or living in the fifth age. And uh, we have the ancient kings lists from both Egypt and Samaria talking about ancient kings from either their own civilization or others that preceded them where to this day we're still trying to figure out who or what these people may have been because the other thing too is is the rule or period of rule of those ancient kings is a little hard to internalize because we've got kings listed where it's like this person's rule was 4,000 years this person's rule was 28,000 years and it's like well, are you speaking figuratively <laughs> or are you talking uh, literally uh, the other thing too is as many of these other uh, ages are not spoken of with the massive bloodletting focus of the Aztecs, but we know kind of how the Aztecs were, and that was just kind of their thing. Um, and again, the other important takeaway is, is that these ancient societies did not view this as destruction. They viewed this as the process. It's a cycle of birth, of ending, of rebirth, um, and that that was their focus. So with that, we're going to move into some slides that uh, are made of content that I copied from uh, his book. So we'll start here. These are the five Mesoameric, uh, Mesoamerican sons, or the five sons. And so we are in the fifth sun. You are here. And then you see uh, the dates, the name of the Aztec god, which I won't even remotely try to pronounce some of these and bastardize the language, other than to say the third son is our famous Quetzalcoatl, uh, or if you prefer, Kokokan. Now, he identifies what was the pole location on the Earth at that time. Right now, it's in our modern-day Arctic uh, during the period of the fourth sun, 63,000 to 16,000 before the Common Era. It was in Hudson Bay, modern-day Hudson Bay. The third sun, it was in the Norwegian Sea. The second sun was Greenland, and the first was in the Bering Sea. How did these end? Well, around or more than 130,000 years ago, the first sun age ended uh, according to the to the Mesoamerican legend, when the sun was knocked from the sky, uh, sounds like a fairly large event to cause that to happen. Uh, then the second sun was great hurricanes and floods. 
the third son was fire and ash. It's also important to note that according to these legends, the third son or the age of the third son was a, was a, a brief age comparatively granted 20,000 years, which by our lifespans is still pretty damn long. But anyway, compared to some of the others, it was, quote, shorter. Uh, that age being brought to an end by fire and ash. Uh, the fourth sun ended by water or great flooding. Now, one could make the argument from the last show I had, uh, especially covering, um, oh dear God, not Graham Hancock, but the other gentleman whose books I've been reading, uh, Freddie Silva. Um, Freddie Silva kind of focusing on the what caused the beginning of the Ice Age and the ending of the Ice Age. The third and fourth son do dovetail with that. Uh, and if you remember my um, program where I talked about um, he, uh, living uh, renewal or living rebirth, uh, where I had the pyramid and I showed that the uh, person who's been prepared for this this journey of sacred knowledge, you know, we left a world that was on fire and destroyed. We survived uh, the flooding that came later. Uh, we know also from some of the other researchers, that the, the period of time of the Ice Age, in geologic terms, was rather short. And that's when you get into Brendan Carlson, Graham Hancock, Freddie Silva, the list goes on, talking about the Earth appears to have passed through a debris field of some kind, where the first strikes were land masses in the north throwing up burned material that blocked the sun. The second strike was in the oceans, where it released a ton of energy and a ton of water. And we had just an incredibly violent melting, uh, according to Brendan Carlson, some of the largest, um, what do you call it, uh, glaciers, uh, perhaps having melted in a month. You know, and the glaciers that were over here in North America, that were over the American Midwest, which which the remnants are the Great Lakes, uh, when those um, glaciers melted, they were two miles high. I mean, imagine two miles high of water melting in 30 days. Oh, my God. Yeah, I mean, Jesus. I mean, instant chaos, instant flooding, instant uh, current change with the ocean because of, the, of, uh, of how that will impact uh, the salination levels in the, wa- in, in, in the, in yes. the oceans. That changes currents. Currents changes uh, migratory patterns of, of organisms. That exactly. creates starvation, and then from on up, I mean, small things die out, the bigger things that eat them also die out, so on and so forth, all right up the food chain. Uh, Ming Tao, thank you. Uh, Randall Carson, my bad. Um, I've got my Carlsons getting mixed up. Um, next slide, if you would be. Okay, and I went, I went a little a little creative here with, with uh, the slide formats, so be, be prepared for some, some beautiful imagery, uh, like I'm doing something for work. Um, so the, the first age, and this is where, um, in Mark's work, he's identifying what he believes are the, the sites around the world, the ancient sites around the world, that mm-hmm. um, were built during this age. Now, there's quite a bit to go over here and you'll see at the top of his little table he's got you know okay these are the sites that are aligned to the Bering Sea Uh, is the site aligned with the equinox the solstice uh, major lunar standstills uh, or other other events the other thing too about Mark's work that does get my attention is one of the challenges in my opinion for other researchers who've delved into this 
is they will look at, let's take Kanasos in Greece, the third, third one down. I know Kanasos very well. If you were to look at rock strata, if you were to look at soil samples, if you were to look at a whole bunch of things, folks, you would say, well, contemporary archaeology believes the site was built here. Alternative archaeology says, no, it's much older. It was built here. Okay, alternative archaeologists, why are you zeroing in at Knossos on that date? Well, because of the position of these astronomical stars and other things in, in the astronomical movement in the sky at night. Okay, but time passing in the solar system and the universe is much, much slower than geological time. And where Mark is going is, I've got key areas at Knossos that are aligned to magnetic north, but magnetic north when it was in the Bering Sea. And that, to me, is what's interesting about his work. I'm not criticizing other alternative archaeologists. They put the blood, sweat, and toil and the research into the work they did. But this is a, what do we use in my industry? This is an iterative process, folks. This is a learning process. We started by saying, well, it's aligned to these constellations in this way, and, and that's why we think the contemporary folks are wrong. Knossos was built X, Y, and Z here in the before the common era time. Yes, but those dates don't change very often. Not, not in the cycle of human history, they don't. But magnetic north in 100,000 years appears to have changed four times. And Knossos looks like it's aligned to the Bering Sea. And that's, that's the interesting distinction, is by using magnetic north, He's further taken it down at a more granular level, folks, to say, wait a minute, I think we need to fine-tune our data here. And, you know, at Machu Picchu, uh, not the template, I'm sorry, I misspelled, the, the Temple of the Three Windows and Ollantaytambo. Uh, I've been to both of these sites. I've spent a whole day at those sites. Ollantaytambo is at an altitude, folks, and, and it sits, I don't want to sound a, a rock outcropping, but it sits on a big big damn mountain is where it sits and when i went up there i remember i had like a little magnifying glass with me and i'm looking at the, the stone blocks and you have these famous rhyolite which is a form of granite 40 ton blocks lined up next to each other and of course the fitment is perfect and one of you see it in my comments there one of the things that immediately leapt off the page to me and the others i was with was weathering up here yeah you got some wind but it's like there's there's no, like rain. You got to be kidding me. There's like lichens that are growing up there, and they're drawing their water out of the soil. So it's like Oyante Tambo, and you're talking to me about weathering. I mean, shit, ten thousand years could go by up there, and you wouldn't even notice it because it's not down in the valley where you tend to get more wear and tear. Same thing with Machu Picchu. Machu Picchu is wedged in between a couple of different mountainsides. Oh, sure, it does rain up there periodically, but again, the the selection of the stone they used and the sites where they built it were meant to last. But the other thing is you're at high altitude, the air's thinner. So there's a lot less wear and tear from mother nature up there. So again, when somebody says, well, contemporary or not contemporary, we believe the site is this, this age. It's like, right, but please, for the love of God, don't tell me you're using weathering as your yardstick because it just doesn't apply. So if we look on this list, the, the much debated Bosnian pyramid, um, he's got a scan of that site in Bosnia, a ground penetrating scan. He does believe it's, it is truly a pyramid structure. 
And of course, the problem with where it's located in Bosnia Herzegovina is you got a war zone down there on par with Lebanon or a couple other places in the world. So it's been very hard. The Bosnians have asked people to come in and look it over, and a number of archaeologists have, but say it with me, they're all alternative archaeologists. And so it's far hard for them to get any any playtime because it's like, well, you're not a major archaeologist. It's like, right, but the data. Um, so we have Canossos in Greece, which also figures prominently in the, the Trojan War story. You have the tomb of Agamemnon at Mycenae. Uh, this uh, figured heavily in the in the works of um, Michael Wood, uh, who produced the famous uh, BBC program that you can catch on YouTube uh, called the Troj uh, In Search of the Trojan War. I have a copy of it on DVD because I'm afraid they're going to turn the internet off and deny us access to all of our stuff. So I keep <laughs> buying as much as I can on DVD or books. The Golden Temple at Amritsar in India, uh, some sites in Iran and Iraq, um, Petra, uh, the Wigan line specifically, um, Chamalcatlan uh, in Mexico, uh, both one and two, uh, real hard place to deal with, very weathered. Uh, Cusco in Peru, Machu Picchu in Peru. The other thing that you'll see that pops up too is uh, that also adds to the confusion is a number of these sites. Uh, as subsequent ages came to pass, were rebuilt or realigned. And so you'll have key things at a location that point to magnetic north during the Bering Sea, but also point to magnetic north at a later time. And that also adds to the confusion. It doesn't change the fact it's aligned to a former magnetic north, but it does show that the site continued to be used for, for generations. So with that, V, would you go to the next one? So here's the second age, and what I mentioned a moment ago that that uh, what do you call it? You've you've got sites that were re repurposed. So we've got the famous Puma Punku in Bolivia, which is a fan favorite of Giorgio Sukulos of Ancient Aliens fame. Uh, Tiwanaku. Uh, we've got the Easter Island sites. We really start getting into some heavy Egyptian sites here. The Temple of Hathor. Uh, the Temple of Kanum, the Temple of Ramses III. Now, that's an interesting item because this also shows us that human ego is predictable because some of these temples to Ramses III or Ramses II are obviously, if this is correct, were older sites and they were simply repurposed by these uh, pharaohs for themselves. We have the famous uh, Saqqara site the Hathor site, uh, the Parthenon, the original. And again, you'll notice Canossos is back, and Mycenae, Tomb of Agamemnon, both of them. A couple of sites in India, we have uh, the famous Tower of, of Babel, or Babel, in Iraq. We have the, the original Osaka Castle in Japan. Uh, potentially the Western Wall in Jerusalem, which raises some interesting thoughts. And then the, the ever-popular Baalbek in Lebanon, which... Uh, also known as the Temple of Jupiter, and it's got a couple other names. Uh, there's one stone block there that I think is 150 tons or something. We don't have a single piece of equipment on this planet that could lift the damn thing. Um, but it, it was moved there uh, in the ancient world. Um, a number of sites in Mexico, including Tenochtitlan, And then the Temple of Nandaras in Nan Madal. For those of you who know, Nan Madal is... Um, Oh, it's on the tip of my tongue. It's a hexagonal form of naturally occurring stone 
Uh, it's a volcanic stone. Shoot, I can't think of it. But anyway, it's uh, those sites, many of them are underwater, leading people to believe that they were built at a time of, of uh, lower water levels. And then the site of Haran uh, in Turkey, uh, which also kind of dovetails into the, the Trojan War storyline, if you will. If you go to the next slide, V. And that latter age was aligned to Greenland. This age is aligned to the Norwegian, the modern Norwegian Sea. Uh, to what I said about the in my comments there to the Ramses Temple, uh, same same as the Sphinx. You know, the Sphinx structure most probably built in the shape of a lion. Um, some pharaoh with an ego problem uh, recarved the head <laughs> into himself. Um, the other thing, too, about Chichen Itza, which you see on this list, I've been to Chichen Itza down in Mexico. It's very beautiful. The, the quality of the site is very good. Uh, but most of it's not excavated. Uh, if You can't do it anymore, but at the time I was there, you could still go up to the top of the main pyramid. Uh, you can look out and actually see stuff poking out of the, out of the, uh, the jungle growth of other, other structures and things. They just haven't had a chance to get in there. We also have a site in Russia in this third age, which is kind of interesting. Uh, we have Hattusa, again, pops up uh, out of Turkey. We have Chan Chan on the coast in Peru, uh, the Nazca Lines. And uh, Tulum in Mexico, for those of you who know, which is on the coast, uh, Uchmal and Palenque, Chichen Itza again. A number of sites in Egypt. Ramses II was busy. He took over two of them. Temple of Horus. Again, we have Bolivia's labyrinth at Chincana. Most people don't even know about that one. And we have a site in Algeria uh, at Jabal Lakhdar. Moving into the fourth, if you'll scroll down. Now we've got sites in Belize. Uh, I was down in Belize a number of years ago. Uh, if you ever get the chance to go, um, the folks in Belize have taken superb care of many, many sites. There's a wide variety of locations down there you can go. Uh, everything is very well maintained, uh, easy access, et cetera. It's, it's a very interesting country to go visit uh, without necessarily some of the political or other problems you might encounter across the border if you were to go to Mexico. Um, we have a number of, of Egyptian sites again. Greece, Mycenae, the Lion Gate. Uh, which is attributed to um, Agamemnon, but may, according to his data, may may be far, far older. Uh, the famous site at Tikal in Guatemala. And again, no disrespect to the sites in India. It's just my command of the language isn't strong enough to pronounce those. Uh, a whole host of sites again. I can do Mexico. it if you want me to. <clears throat> yes, you could. Which one do you want me to pronounce? Oh, any of them. Let's start with the short temple at... Mahalo oh, the short temper. Yes, Mahabalapuram. Yes. And Rameshwar. this is uh, Rameshwar Mandir. This is uh, Sri Martan Sun. It's a sun temple, excuse me. Uh, the next one is uh, Uriyapur Rajasthan, Sas Balhu Temple, and uh, Choga Zanbil. Oh, that's in Iran. Sorry. That's in Iran, but you did that fine. <laughs> You're uh, quite welcome, my friend. I am also available for birthdays and bar mitzvahs. <laughs> okay. So we have Machu Picchu again in Peru, and Tonga, another one of the sites near Nanmadal in the Pacific, uh, Hattusa in Turkey yet again. Here's an interesting one, California, the Blythe and Taglios. 
I did not have a chance to look that up. I don't even know what is the that, hell it is. Is that the reason why California from just – I'm not talking about the crazy liberals. I'm just talking about topographically and then the, the aura that's there. Why is it so beautiful? Like it's it feels good going there. It's weird, right? Yeah, and I've spent a lot of, as you know, I've spent a lot of time in Northern and Southern California, and they each have their attraction, and they each are very different. And if you get the chance to go to San Luis Obispo, which is in the center of the state, yeah. um, it, it also is is kind of a stand a standalone. Um, yeah, there's a lot about the geography of California that is is just absolutely beautiful. Um, I, as I've alluded to on many a rogue show, I, I continue to have the feeling that the government of California is on par with the joke about um, uh, what they say in South America about Colombia. Uh, I'm mm-hmm. going to, you know, I'm God and I'm going to create Colombia and it's going to be one of the most beautiful countries in all of South America with the most beautiful men and women possible and the most amazing uh, geology and geography. And then I'm going to uh, pit them politically against each other in a way that will never allow for peace. <laughs> that's what it is so this is this is my last slide so i'll go back to my prepared comments um one of the the i wouldn't use necessarily the word reservation but one of the questions i would ask mark is um about his theories not not to challenge him but just for some clarification we've discussed often uh, many of researchers who said okay we had a major catastrophe and it was a long time ago uh prior to the you know and then we had the ice age and there was this worldwide effort to warn future generations that it could occur again, along with other important data. Okay, that's that's one thing, but that's still a stretch of a thousand years as we went, as I started today's program with phase one and phase two of the building in, in Peru. I could probably also live with four phases of building after each ice age. Um, the, to align the structures only to magnetic north is not enough. Now, I know these structures do have other symbolism of things incorporated into them. And the importance of magnetic north, I think, becomes more important as we consider what that means. It goes back to my comment about you looked at a particular site, say, Knossos in, in Greece, and you thought it was of a certain age because of the, the celestial alignments it has. Well, yes, that may be true, but you have to take into account the magnetic north aspect. That radically changes everything. Um, but we're talking about, according to Mark here, we're talking about a, sp- a span of over 100,000 years. And that, in my opinion, raises some rather spooky variables. Uh, these include and are not limited to, did we have another race on this planet who's very long-lived? Uh, or a group of planet of people on this planet uh, who are very long-lived and oftentimes remain hidden from us. We have a number of legends around the world, I've raised this before, that there are these places of power on our planet. You can easily just start with Tibet, where certain mountains are sacred and those are the are where the gods reside and we're not to go there we're not to disturb them in any way uh nan Medal for many years when when sailors first started discovering those sites in the pacific ocean uh portuguese and spanish sailors uh local native peoples uh, would be asked by them well why don't you ever go to nan Medal or some of these other islands there's some there's some valuable resources there uh, coconuts and things that, that you could use and they would always say the same thing uh, those places were built by the gods and they may return or they do still reside there. You just don't see them. And we're not to go there out of respect. Um, this also gets into another one of my my favorite theories about are we dealing with some kind of, of ancient artificial intelligence that's still operating in some way we don't understand. Um, you know, it's all, it's all conjecture. I, I leave the who and their methods to others. Uh, but in conclusion, you know, Mark's work does bring 
uh, a lot of valuable new research. It's incredibly well done and, and certainly should be considered. So that's my conclusion for today. Excellent job, man. I think uh, you covered the the big thing. You know, I was I was listening to you remember that book you mentioned, the story of Adam and Eve by Cha, uh, Chan Thomas, Thomas. Yes. And I was listening to the audiobook. I I, I haphazardly uh, stumbled upon it um, on YouTube, and uh, the dude that thing is terrifying. Yeah, it is, uh, especially when you consider some of these programs I've had here on Rogue about the ancient world, various researchers, especially uh, another you know big one, folks, is, is the um, Human Interference Project, where I talked about researchers in the 1980s got together and said, okay, we've been given this assignment. And by the way, folks, after working for a research lab that does that kind of work, uh, among other things, I know some people would be like, God, the government told you to figure out a way to communicate to people 10,000 years in the future to stay away from nuclear waste. And it's like, that's the least of the shit they ever asked us to do. <laughs> that would make you roll your eyes and go, who the hell fund? I mean, I'm glad for the money, but why are we doing this again? Um, but yeah, the, the takeaway I left you all with about the Human Interference Project, that at the end of it, the researchers found themselves going back to the very sites we just reviewed today and we've talked about on other programs and saying they're all overbuilt, way overbuilt, violently overbuilt, not mm. just the size of the stone and the blocks, but again, the redundancy, the, the uh, massive numbers of sites around the world so that if some of them are destroyed, repurposed, whatever it might be, the message still gets through. And as I showed you with just, just the example of Peru, they're not the only ones who did it, but what we attribute to the Incans, you know, those walls are designed to move and flex. It's like you built it in a place known for earthquakes and the damn things are still standing. I mean, it's it, when you go down there, you can see where earthquakes have done some damage, but or the Spaniards did, but it's like on the whole, the integrity was sustained. So to the Chan Thomas book, for some people, when they read it, it's like, oh, oh, well, okay. But it's like you start considering that just in the past week or two, we've had major media outlets saying, huh, I'll be damned. Uh, the Earth's core reversed its direction. Yeah, what is up with that? It, 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 it and then a week, and, and then a week and then later, we get a. And then a week later, we get a. I mean, I'm not making fun by any means. A no, week later, we get a seven five in freaking Turkey. I mean, holy yeah, shit! Seven eight, man. It was like a seven eight in Turkey. Yeah, it was crazy. Dude, I mean, what is that? Why would the Earth's core? And we don't even understand. I mean, Matthew Eric's last broadcast. People have to listen in. Go back and listen. He actually mentioned it. There's so much that we don't know about the. Earth. We're assuming all these things, right? But but the fact of the matter is that, that all of a sudden the, the, the core just stopped spinning and is now running in reverse. Like, what is going on here? Well, and That the, usually occurs with like a pole shift. Yes, and the rather casual wave of the hand way they all said, uh, oh, evidently it does this every five years. Really? Yeah, okay. <laughs> I, I'd, uh, hey, all you graduate students looking for something to do, uh, this would be a great opportunity for you to start putting some Excel spreadsheets together and start finding out. Hey, uh, every time it's most probably reversed direction, uh, did we have some sort of, shall we say, Earth-based event going on that we might want to maybe be aware Um Algo, by the way, thank you. Yes, the stone I was thinking of was basalt at, at Nanmadal. That was the, the construction material they used. Which, by the way, folks, is some rough crap to work with. We were using it at the lab where I worked because uh, the former Soviet Union found a way to um, 
I don't know how else to say this, to basically grind up basalt in such a way that they could use it the same way we used the tiles on the space shuttle for heat dissipation. Uh, the Soviet Union was working on their their uh, space shuttle, the Buran, actually built like three of them, I think. Um, it used a type of basalt block that they reformatted using a, a technique that the Soviet Union came up with. They could not reproduce our, our tiles that we used, the ceramic tiles we developed, but they could come up, you know, it's typical of Russia. They just keep banging away at a problem until they get it. But I can tell you from, from laboratory research and, and my standing over the shoulders of very smart people watching them do this, basalt can become very brittle if you don't work with it the right way. And so yeah. the thing about Nan Madal that always gets me is, is when you see layer after layer after layer after layer of these basalt uh, stone pillars laid out, um, it's it just from being in a lab watching people work with the stuff, it's like telling me that you were you were working with tissue paper. I mean, it's if you it's like the old joke about diamond. It's one of the hardest substances on earth, but if you hit it just the right way, a diamond will shatter into powder. It's the same thing with basalt. If you work with it the right way, it's a very durable material. It'll last a very long time. It, it can handle the weather uh, that you've got there in the Pacific uh, region. Uh, but it's it's hard to work with. And these sites are extensive. And well, we're not talking about just a little temple. We're talking about a couple of islands, including not limited to Indonesia itself, where Graham Hancock's been trucking around that one uh, that one temple we're in his program on, on Netflix yeah. recently, uh, they now believe that temple, which is funny if you think about it, you know, it was a, it was a big uh, emotional moment that a lot of people were like, whoa, Graham, hey, slow down. I mean, 15,000 years is one thing. Now you're telling us this temple in Indonesia might be 40,000 years old. It's like, well, you know, you've got Mark over here, Mark Carlotto over here saying, hold my beer. It's like, <laughs> I'm working with a hundred thousand years, <laughs> but yeah, the, the Adam and Eve uh, storyline. And again, coming full circle folks. And we've talked about that story by Chan Thomas a couple times here on the program. I think the right people in the right way. I've, I've shared with all of you what happened. Uh, Chan Thomas gave a deal. This is God's honest truth. It's in the public domain and go look it up. He debriefed the CIA in 1962 1965 somewhere in there uh i don't know how they became aware of his work uh they did uh it's not uncommon folks the cia interviews people all the time in a wide variety of topics that's what makes them different than the nsa the nsa is just interested in signals intelligence and, and decoding things the cia does have the big history analysts and all the big brain people saying hey is there a correlation between the fall of of the greek city-state period and this period in, in our, our contemporary history, because, you know, on a certain level, their job is to look out for stuff that might be of danger to the country or <laughs> to themselves. Um, so, I mean, here in the 1960s, they bring this guy in. Uh, they have him debrief them about his book, his background research, everything else. 24 hours later, they buy up every copy of his book in circulation. Every bookstore, everywhere they can find it. Vasquez, because there was McCarthyism back then, right. fellas, and, uh, they were looking for communist ideas. Communist ideas were all over that book, and they were trying to take out and purge out the communist ideas. I got a so, few minutes of this story I want to play real quick before we go. Go ahead. Okay, listen to this, folks. And I hope you have your shitting pants on. Thundering roar. The earthquake starts. Only it's not like any earthquake in recorded history. In California, the mountains shake like ferns in a breeze. The mighty Pacific rears back and piles up into a mountain of seawater more than two miles high, and starts its race eastward. With the force of a thousand armies the wind attacks, ripping, 
shredding everything in its supersonic bombardment. The unbelievable mountain of Pacific seawater follows the wind eastward, burying Los Angeles and San Francisco as if they were but grains of sand. Nothing, but nothing, stops the relentless, overwhelming onslaught of wind and ocean. Across the continent the thousand-mile-per-hour wind wreaks its hell, its unholy vengeance, everywhere, mercilessly, unceasingly. Every living thing is ripped into shreds while being blown across the countryside, and earthquakes leave no place untouched. In many places the Earth's molten sublayer breaks through and spreads a sea of white-hot liquid fire to add to the Holocaust. Within three hours the fantastic wall of seawater moves across the continent, burying the wind, ravaged land under two miles of seething water coast to coast. In a fraction of a day all vestiges of civilization are gone, and the great cities, Los Angeles, San Francisco, Chicago, Dalias, New York, Boston, are nothing but legends. Barely a stone is left where millions walked just a few hours before. A few lucky ones who managed to find shelter from the screaming wind on the lee side of a high mountain peak, such as Antimassive, watched the sea of molten fire breaking through the quaking valleys below. The raging waters follow at supersonic speeds, piling higher and higher, steaming over the molten earth fire, and rising almost to their feet. Only great, high mountains such as this one can withstand the cataclysmic onslaught. North America is not alone in her death throes. Central America suffers the same cannonade, wind, earth fire, and inundation. South America finds the Andes not high enough to stop the cataclysmic violence pounded out by nature in her berserk rage. In less than a day, Ecuador, Peru, and western Brazil are shaken madly by the devastating earthquake, the Andes are piled higher and higher by the Pacific supersonic onslaught as it surges over itself against the mountains. The entire continent is burned by molten earth fire, buried under cubic miles of catastrophically violent seas, then turned into a frozen hell. Everything freezes. Man, beast, plant, and mud are all rock-hard in less than four hours. Europe cannot escape the onslaught. The raging Atlantic piles higher and higher on itself, following the screeching wind eastward. The Alps, Pyrenees, Urals, and Scandinavian mountains are shaken, then heaved even higher when the wall of seawater strikes. Western Africa and the sands of the Sahara vanish in nature's wrath, under savage attack by wind and ocean. The area bounded by Zaire, South Africa, and Kenya suffers only severe earthquakes and winds, little inundation. Survivors there marvel at the sun, standing still in the sky for nearly half a day. Stop it right there. Yeah, and, and uh, a very important part of that passage, folks, is Chan Thomas is not speaking figuratively about the the quick freeze. Uh, it's been said by many. Um, it it continues to be an area of research. We have mammoths who did who were of perfectly healthy age they did not have a broken leg they were not speared by whichever human or humanoid life form was was out there hunting them they were flash flash frozen dead with food still in their mouth with food in their mouth and food and in, in their, their stomachs yep and we we have found and again you have to go to russian researchers because you need permafrost 
yes, they found it in Canada and so on, but the Russians have a considerable amount of data on this. And unfortunately, due to our current political situation, um, no one is talking to them right now. Uh, but I mean, they have found woolly mammoths. They have found cave lions. They have found a wide variety Direwolves. of fauna in this condition. And it's like, holy Christ, what? <laughs> we we are off the reservation. We can't get our brains around this because we're talking about a flash freeze that occurred so fast that these animals loosely put, let's give ourselves a little room to maneuver here. In roughly a half an hour period, they, they just froze to death. And it, and it happened so quickly, they didn't even realize it was happening. I can't so, fathom that, man. Uh, now, there was an ask from, I think, Sue Wu's. You were asking about uh, the books mentioned today. Uh, the first one is Mark Carlotto, uh, two Ts, a uh, book called Before Atlantis. Uh, mm. Then there is Freddie Silva. I've, I'm on my third or fourth book now by Silva. You can go, they're all on you on uh, Amazon. So if you want to buy them, there are another uh, book supplier. Uh, last name S I L V A, Freddie Silva. Um, Freddie, as I've often said, is the kind of guy you need to read after you read Graham Hancock. Graham Hancock is like your primer. And then Freddie is the guy. Freddie, one of Freddie's many uh, attributes that's kind of cool about him is, is he tends to go talk to local tribes and local peoples and just stay with them for long periods of time, not yeah. over a cup of coffee kind of thing and, and get a lot of detail. So, and, uh, you know, I'll post some stuff on, on, uh, discord. Uh, some of the images and stuff we, we uh, covered today. I hope I don't get any copyright problems. But anyway, um, so uh, our show went a little long today. I apologize for that. Um, but uh, thanks for joining. And uh, I'll be back on uh, the, what month am I in here? The 24th, Friday yeah. the 24th, and covering the normal uh, chaos and disorder that's going on out in the world in which we live. <laughs> so uh, have a good weekend, everybody, and take care. And, uh, you know, uh, for those of you who, who know where to find me, I'll see you on Discord. Thank you all for listening. And we're over and out. Thank you, fellas. Appreciate it. And, folks, enjoy your weekends. Cheers. <laughs>